Hi, my name is Brooke Patterson and I'm your host for today's BJSM podcast. We're joined again by Dr. Shivali Christopher and Dr. Rita Deering. Last week, we chatted about their paper in the BJSM, um, an international consensus statement on the clinical and exercise professional opinion of return to running readiness after childbirth. Um, I encourage you to go back and have a listen uh, for to that podcast. Uh, it's a really high-level summary of some of the key considerations that came from that expert group in terms of what we should be assessing um, and treatment for if you have a mother who is postpartum and wanting to return to running. But in today's podcast, we're going to follow up and get a little bit more into the nitty-gritty of um, developing a return to run program, which is actually going to be a second paper from this um, amazing group's piece of work. So, um, Rita and Shafali, let's talk through kind of that developing a return to run program for clinicians. Yeah, so this looked at um, overall training program. So what kind of training they should be doing before they initiate running and then what kind of training they should be doing after running has been initiated to then progress their um, running as well. So um, we asked the respondents about key muscle groups to train with exercise, both before initiating running and after initiating running, um, and about the actual run training plan itself. So um, how do you start running? How um, uh, Do you use a mileage or a distance-based approach? Um, do you use a time um, approach? Um, things of that nature. Um, and just kind of talked about um, uh, the biopsychosocial um, factors that you would look at to determine how to um, alter their training program. So um, are they ready to progress their training program or do they maybe need to stay where they are or should the training program be regressed? I think a good example of that, Brooke, is how you were saying you didn't get much sleep last night, right? And so if today was the big day where you were going to start some sprints, maybe, you know, with the lack of sleep and maybe if you're fatigued, we just pick a different day. So, um, you know, that's kind of what the that was trying to say there. Yeah, I think it's yeah being a bit kind and lenient on yourself as opposed to probably the the mode that you're used to training in that, okay, every second day I run or I've got to run three times a week and I've got to do my strength two times a week. And, yeah, if you're feeling just flat, like you know you try and run and you feel ten times heavier, then, yeah, that isn't, isn't the best um, day and, you know, go for a swim instead or go for a walk or, yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, in terms of the like the strength training, I guess like yeah, how many like are we using time? How many weeks of like body weight and like resistance training? Like, should we be able to be lifting our body weight? Because you know that's often what gets thrown around in the ACL literature. You got to be able to squat your body weight before you know you're, you're cleared. What are we talking here in this space? <laughs> Yeah, so we didn't get um, that specific from the Delphi respondents. Um, more of what they did was just identified um, key muscle groups. Um, so the pelvic floor muscles obviously were listed as something that we definitely need to be training. Um, the abdominal muscles and then several lower extremity muscles, hamstrings, quads, hip rotators, um, things of that nature. So the... Um, specific parameters of how much somebody needs to be able to lift, for example, um, was not 
was not given. And again, I think that might be person specific as well, but more just looking at, again, it should be a gradual progression, right? So um, maybe in those first, you know, weeks postpartum, you are just doing body weight work or, you know, you're doing some isometric exercises or things of that nature. Um, but before you start running, you should be um, progressing the, that strength training to resistance, you know, with load, um, and then also adding in some plyometrics and things like that to make sure that they're able to um, handle the impact that happens with running. And again, that those plyometrics should be gradual as well. And while you're doing those, um, while you're doing that strength training, we should again be assessing for symptoms, right? So it's not just, we talked last time about that run readiness screen where we're looking for musculoskeletal or pelvic health symptoms. It's not just a one-time screen, right? So if they pass that run readiness screen and they initiate running and you're continuing to progress their program, we still need to be checking in um, as we progress of, okay, are we still asymptomatic or do we still have a level of symptoms that the runner is comfortable with, right? Um, because they you know, they may have had incontinence even pre-pregnancy, right? That's uh, incontinence is common in, in um, high impact activities such as running. So if it's something that doesn't bother them and they're comfortable with progressing through that um, and they've been assessed by a pelvic health therapist, you know, then it's okay to continue to progress. But if their symptoms worsen, then maybe we need to um, scale that back down. And even in the running literature, right? Like someone has a running related injury. We don't know um, exactly how strong they need to be or how much weight they need to lift yet. Um, and so, you know, using just general exercise principles is the key here um, and seeing where they are and where they need to be. And then how did, how did they, how are they progressing along? Like Rita said, right. Cause you know, you suddenly have incontinence after maybe you've reached a stage where you're now running, you know, 25 minutes at a stretch. Is that when fatigue hits and you're starting to have symptoms? So just checking in, um, like Rita said, is going to be key here. I guess it's um, preventing those other injuries and niggles that you had before as well, um, whether it's tendinopathy and, yeah, if you're not, um, if you haven't run since, you know, the first trimester, then, you know, you're going to have potentially need more lead-in time than someone who ran right up until till birth. So um, is there any update on in terms of, like, I think I'm thinking about to uni days in terms of the type of abdominal exercises that are recommended now. Like, I think we got taught in uni, like, sit-ups are a no-no and um, for that abdominal separation. And something that's been really useful for me is breathing when I'm doing abdominal stuff. I was kind of holding my breath. Um, yeah, any advice to clinicians on the types of abdominal exercises? Yeah, so we um, we did talk about that in the paper and... Um, there is definitely rationale for training all of the abdominal muscles. So the flexors, rotators, um, deep abdominal muscles that stabilize the spine and pelvis. Um, and actually new research has come out, a randomized control trial showing that flexion exercises did not worsen the distance between the abdominal muscles. So we don't have to scare people away from crunches anymore. Um, but 
Yeah. I mean, the, um, it's interesting that you mentioned the holding the breath. Um, yeah, certainly holding your breath when you're doing any kind of exercise is not um, necessarily a good thing. You know, oxygen is important. Um, so yeah, we should be cueing people to not hold their breath when they're doing um, any of their exercises, their pelvic floor exercises, their abdominal exercises, their hip strengthening exercises. Um, so yeah, breathing is kind of important. Um, but when we look at like just actual, um, cause, um, training the diaphragm was actually something that came out in the consensus as well, that we just couldn't find any research to support that. Um, so, um, there has been, uh, there was a systematic review, I believe that was recently published that showed that, um, just doing breathwork exercises does not make your pelvic floor stronger. So if you want to improve your pelvic floor, you need to be doing pelvic floor muscle training. Um, but I think, you know, reminding people to not use breath holding as a motor control strategy is really important. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that study because I think I had a similar question to my physio. I was like, can I just do functional exercises? Like if I'm doing, you know, squats and jumps and things and I'm not having symptoms, surely I'm using my pelvic floor and that's, you know, that's enough. Um, but she kind of, I think, referred to probably a similar study in terms of that specificity and isolated um, muscle training is is still important. Um and then the other thing that I kind of refresh myself going through this process as well myself is the anatomy of the pelvic floor in terms of the different, like the angle of the, the muscle fibres and therefore thinking about your progression of exercises and return to impact because I'd like to get back to some, you know, multi-directional running as well and actually um, doing kind of sideways lateral is kind of stretching the pelvic floor out. I'm using my hands. People can't see that. But <laughs> Um, so yeah, refreshing your anatomy of the different functions of the abdominal muscles, the different function, um, and direction of the pelvic floor muscles. Yeah. You know, and even if, if you're a treadmill runner, you know, where you don't have to worry about maybe like dodging dogs out on the sidewalk or whatever, um, you know, running isn't a sagittal plane activity, right? There's rotation that's occurring, um, during running too. And so, you know, even if you're just planning to run on a treadmill and, and that's, you know, your jam, it's still important to train the abdominal muscles in multi-directional, um, you know, exercises, because even in the, you know, what might seem like a straightforward one direction run on a treadmill, there is rotation happening um, and, and your body needs to be able to cope with that. Um, I know you mentioned a whole heap of different muscle groups and, you know, these mothers, they're going to become busier and busier and trying to fit in all of those different exercises in terms of, I guess, barriers, in terms of time and getting adherence um, to being able to achieve all of this. Yeah, was it that did um, barriers come up in the, the study that you did? Yeah, so some barriers that came up were um, more kind of accessing the um, knowledge base, right? So how do they find the people who can provide them with um, guidance on how to return to running? Um, so our clinician and exercise professionals who responded to the um, um, survey said that the majority of the people that they work with are self-referred. So meaning that the runner finds them on their own um, and they pay for it out of pocket. Um, and so again, that we talked last time about that multidisciplinary approach. And so that's really important that we um, help 
these runners find the people who um, who can guide them better. Um, and then hopefully then we can also um, have this be covered by insurance and things like that. Because again, returning to exercise is really important for cardiorespiratory health, uh, you know, for overall mortality and morbidity. Um, and so making sure that they feel comfortable going back to that is important. Yeah. Normalizing that, you know, question, even at your um, postpartum checkup, you know, what are you doing for exercise? How are you getting there? What kind of barriers are you having? You know, asking the um, the mom that, you know, going back to what we talked about the earlier podcast, what can clinicians be ready for? I think those are some things that they can spend time and really help the mom as well. Yeah, I guess just empowering them to, yeah, try and prioritize that um, time for them as well and and getting that social support to be able to yeah. fit in that exercise is just a good conversation, I guess, to have with mothers that might empower them to then have those conversations at home as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's a probably a good time to bring up, you know, there's a lot of information on the internet and a lot of uh, information on social media. And so just being, being uh, careful at what you're reading and, and interpreting and doing what feels right for you and your body is going to probably be the most important here. There is not much research in this area. So everything is being extrapolated and uh, understood. And, and, and if you're reading something that just doesn't sit, sit right with you, maybe, you know, look at that literature, look at that research and see, you know, if it's been interpreted correctly as well. Or is there anything supporting that? It's okay to ask for that too. Um, right. It's a good segue to my final question in terms of, I guess, resources for clinicians, if they're wanting to kind of upskill in this area and see more patients and say to their patients that they're seeing for their Achilles tendinopathy that's also a postpartum mother that, you know, um, you know, what are some of those other considerations for them as clinicians treating these women and also resources for patients, I guess, that um, clinicians can refer to? Yeah, well, um, I think podcasts like this are great. <laughs> Gives them a, a, a quick synopsis of the research literature and staying up to date on the literature is really important. Um, so this is a nice, fast, easy way to do that. Um, if you have the time, we have a heck of a lot of citations in these papers. So please uh, go back and look at the literature that we've cited. Um, but there are also some um, continuing education courses that are um, vetted and are um, evidence-based and, you know, provide the citations on which they base their recommendations. Um, so that's really important. Um, and I think just um, also to employers of um, healthcare providers, just prioritizing giving your employees the um, you know the funds and the time to be able to keep up to date on these things, whether it's you know to go uh, attend a course or you know to host a weekly journal club or something of that um, nature, so that they can stay up to date um, would be really important for. Um, the runners themselves, um, again, you know, access to po to podcasts like these are great. Um, seeking out your local um, pelvic health therapist or you know your local run coach, things of that nature. Trying to find people who are educated in this topic and um, can provide some um, further guidance. Um, some healthcare. Um, providers will have like their website where they'll have some um, information listed as well. Um, or one of our um, co-authors um, 
is a co-founder of the Active Pregnancy Foundation, and they put out a lot of great information on their website that is intended for, you know, the consumer, not for a clinician or a um uh, a researcher like us. So it makes it a lot more um, accessible and easy to understand. We did come up with some infographics too, that will be accompanying yes. this paper. So that might be an easy way to just quickly get a summary of some of the recommendations from these Delphi's. Amazing. Yeah. And we can pop some links to some of the things you mentioned, uh, Rita, in the, the show notes as well um, and as you say it's not just things like podcasts or infographics give them to your patients and then they might come back with more questions and open up those conversations as well so um, unless you've got any final takeaways for clinicians um, we can wrap it up there and um, thank you to everyone who's listened in and we hope you have a physically active day thank you